0: all right i'm back i have a stop sign i put on my door it's signaled to my kids not to come in
1: does it work
0: uh yes it's only failed once and it was because she was already in trouble and was coming to appeal to me to not be in trouble <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by new relic to track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com slash Ruby. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 68 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. Uh, This week, we're going to be talking about our book club book, and that's Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. And we also have uh, the authors here, and that's Steve Freeman and Nat Price. We'll talk to them in a minute. Um, I just want to introduce our panel. Uh, First, we have James Edward Gray. Hello, Edward Gray. We also have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, let's go ahead and introduce you guys. Um, Steve, why don't you go first? Just tell us a little about yourself.
2: Oh, hi. Um... So I'm based in London, where I'm a freelance software person. Um, um, it's a slightly complicated check, and complicated history, which involved uh, working for a whole bunch of things, including you know software houses and consultancies. Um, never directly for an end for an end client. Usually either um, either through a consultancy or, or as an independent. Um, Stopped off for a PhD along the way, uh, which gave me a chance to get into a few few things a bit deeper. Um, and along with that, sort of early member of the London Extreme Tuesday Club, which is a group of uh, like-minded people who got together about getting off for twelve years ago now. And a lo- as we say in the book, a lot of the material is, is comes out of a decade of arguing in pubs. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's, it's been quite thoroughly road tested before we wrote it down.
0: Awesome. Well, how about you, Nat? Do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Hello. Uh,
3: very similar to Steve. I also am a freelance independent computer programmer uh, and have worked in a variety of industries. Um, some banking, some sports visualization uh, in the first dot-com boom. I've done a PhD. I'm currently doing some embedded Java stuff for a major broadcaster for their set-top boxes. Um, uh, yeah, I, and uh, again, I met, met Steve at XTC where we and many other people bounced these ideas around. Um, uh, and I sort of, yeah, carried on with them until they became the book. Um yeah. I think that about covers
0: it, really. Awesome. So have you guys worked on the same projects then following this process? Or is it just something that you guys kind of came together and said, yeah, we kind of do things the same way?
3: More the latter. We have worked on the same projects, oh. uh, but we, but only a few times. Um, but we have separately applied these uh, techniques uh, to a number of different projects, um, both you know, Greenfield and uh, Brownfield uh, projects um, and sort of hone them along the way as well as talking to other people who've been sort of trying them out
2: and uh, applying them in different areas as well. Yeah. I, think, I don't think we've ever, ever actually been on the same team. I don't think we've ever made it. We've done it at, at, at Sky Network Services briefly. Briefly, but mostly yeah. this, we, we did have some time in the same room. Mm. Same room, different teams.
0: Yeah. Right. That's
1: interesting. So, um, I mean, it, it's it's really interesting to talk about how the ideas have been road tested, you know, by uh, talking about them with other uh, XP folks and stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, you basically ended up writing, I think, what, you know, to me seems like uh, it's kind of becoming the Canonical test book lately, you know. I mean, everybody talks about it as as uh, probably about the best approach uh, to testing and stuff. It, I was wondering though, from the intro, was that really what you set out to do, or was that more of a happy accident, and and you really just set out to, you know, show people how mocks are supposed to be used, for example.
2: Well, to just just. To interrupt for a moment, we don't regard. I don't. Let me rephrase that. I don't regard this as a book on testing. No, I don't. No, I regard it a book on software development, <laughs> guided by. Uh, tests. That's why. Does, that's why it's called that. Yeah. Um,
3: I think. I think uh, it, we uh, pitched it uh, as a book about test-driven design and development, um, but we picked the word "guided" rather than "driven." Um, because it's sort of less, it's less forceful in a way it, it more accurately reflects how the tests do guide development um, but, but secretly it was really a book about how to do design, and OO design um, in a particular style and, and how to uh, make that design style emerge through a kind of holistic process where sort of design and the way people work together and the way you test uh, is all part of the same thing uh, rather than it being a, a book just about testing or just about design.
2: I think actually, I mean actually I think the history as far as I remember is we did at least I, again I did actually want to write something down about the mock objects thing because I was tired of being people disagreeing with what I hadn't said so I thought, I know, we'll write a book, and then at least we'll disagree about what I said, not something else. <laughs> and we got, which never happens anyway. But, um, and we got a little bit of the way in and realized it's actually about something else altogether. Um, so we pivoted, I think is the appropriate phrase. And it turned into much more about, because again, we, re- we realized that the, 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 a lot of the arguments about mocks and not mocks are, are actually completely at the wrong level. And it's more about a, a, a design philosophy. And that's what we try to get across. And then the mocks sort of fall naturally out of that, if that's what you're interested in. Um, so it's much more about, the, the, like that said, the, the, the design philosophy and
4: development philosophy that we, we try and follow. How would you sum up that philosophy if you had to?
2: Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> collaborate lo- lots of lots of little pieces talking to each other um, yeah. compositional
3: and, and, uh, yeah. compositional comp- uh, composed designed where, where you composed your systems your behaviour out of context independent pieces that compose well
2: I think and it's sh- actually okay. What do you think, Steve? Well, actually, I think, I think there's, a, there's a picture in there somewhere. The, the, so the big difference is: so you, you've got a system that's built up out of lots of little bits and pieces talking to each other, and you can either focus on the pieces, or you can focus on the communication or the protocols. And lots of people focus on the pieces, which is fine. That's their, their privilege. We tend to focus on the communication, which is how we ended up where we are, and and there are, you know, how the pieces talk to each other. And this goes back to Alan Kay's famous line about, it's all about messaging. Mm-hmm. It's about how the pieces uh, talk to each other, and which is what I just said. And um, that pushes you in certain interesting directions, which you can choose to or not. Um, and I think one thing that became clear after we, we sort of plowed through this is that a lot of the arguments we're having were actually much more fundamental than whether to use a particular technique for testing or not, but were about whether you were interested in in the pieces
4: or the or the or the links. You know, the, the nodes or the edges, if you like. Right. And as um, you point okay. out, your ideas, you know, they go back to to Alan Kay, and one of the things that I, well, I wonder I, about, yeah, at least. Yeah. And one of the yeah. things that I I wonder about often is. Um, what is it? What is it about design that I guess you know I mean we've we've had these ideas for a long time and yet and yet we've seen so many uh, development projects kind of go into let's you know into the territory where it's talking more about let's model the model the problem with our classes and we'll figure about figure out how they talk to each other sort of as a, as, a, as an afterthought um, why is that so easy to fall into? I don't know.
2: Uh, it's part of the training. Um, so having been through the OO bubble, um, yeah, one of the things, when you get to a certain age, you, you've, and you've been through several bubbles, you start to recognize the pattern. Um, and <laughs> yeah, we're, we're about to enter a monad bubble, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me raise you on that. Um, what was going to say? Is, is that the way a lot of OO was taught was taught in terms of classification. Mm. Yes, and, and sense. You know, and, and particularly, I think, because at the time, most people were doing C++. I mean, right. Possibly, you know, the, 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 the dominant, um, what do you call it, the, the dominant language in, in the OO world, I guess. I think um, it also
3: comes from, uh, I guess, the, 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 the sort of uh, generation before OO was uh, very database-centric and entity relationship modeling. Mm. And certainly when I learned OO at university 20 something years ago, it was more focusing on class hierarchies and a class as a set and set theory, uh, rather than focusing on message passing protocols. Uh, My PhD ended up in looking at process calculi for concurrency. So that influenced my thinking about OO design and OO programming when I ended up going into industry and using things like Java and stuff.
4: That's that's interesting because that's something that we've noted uh, a few times in discussions on this show uh, is that uh, a lot of these sort of, a lot of the concurrent programming systems that are becoming popular now actually have a lot of properties to, you know, like Erlang uh, and, uh, uh, you know, some of the stuff in Clojure have properties to them which are actually very close to some of the original ideas of you know cellular objects uh, yeah. sending messages to each other. Yeah.
2: And, and again, I mean, I, I didn't quite do as, my PhD wasn't as formal, but, but again, I, I was doing distributed stuff. Right. you spent time thinking about, again, thinking about messages and this sort of, at a larger scale sort of cellular approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny that you guys you're, you're talking about. Well, way back when I was in school, like like you're really that old. But uh, <laughs> I, I I do want to point out. I, I mean, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 2006, which it really isn't that long ago, and they were still teaching it the same way with uh, oh, yeah. classifications and you know the the you know your inheritance model is like the the key to the whole thing, and they were teaching us Java. Yeah. So, so I mean I, I still think that you know there are a lot of people that still don't understand it and, and institutionally they're still stuck in that mindset
2: yeah and, and again one of the things about it is that particularly when you're teaching it and you don't do it all day which is what you know most academics don't code for a living obviously mm-hmm. um, is and they certainly don't do maintenance for a living is the, the class stuff is the easiest to see and the easiest to teach yeah because it's there and compi- you know, the compiler will catch it for you so, and you can draw it with UML.
3: Oh, UML. yeah. UML is like an entity relationship uh, modeling uh, notation more than, uh, than a message protocol definition notation, you see what I mean. You can well, use the, sequence diagrams and, and some state machines yeah. and things, but they're not very much focused upon. And almost all the UML you
2: see is static class relationship diagrams. I mean, the, the irony is it's actually all in there, but like a lot of things in UML. People don't use it. Well, because it's, yeah. it's all in there.
0: Yes. Well. <laughs> well, I think I think that's interesting too because in a lot of cases we talk about. I mean, we we think in in uh, the objects. You know, we usually don't think about the edges as opposed to the nodes in in mm. our system. Um, just because in the physical world, I mean, the things that we really identify with are the endpoints. I mean, we don't really think about the street. We don't think about the pipe. We don't think about the power line. You know, we think about as the appliance and the power plant. And, uh, you know, and so it it is a little bit different thinking, realizing that the relationship and the message passing are really the parts that matter because those are the parts that define the shape of the system.
2: Well, the the irony is, is that these days, you know, you have lots of consumer devices that you have no idea what's going on inside. But you have a few buttons on the front that
0: you can press, mm-hmm.
2: which is effectively the the protocol. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in fact, one of the when we're teaching, one of the diagrams we we pictures we use is of what is now a very old hi-fi system, because that's I mean, it's probably even saying a hi-fi system makes, dates me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's got interfaces, it's got plugs and going in various directions and some knobs on the front and a dial, and that's you know that's. Um, kind of the model that's that's why we use the picture because it's kind of the model that we teach right. so that, you can swap out it, you know yeah
1: when i was reading the book um i was struck by uh, and i think you do actually mention this at one point um and maybe it was the the great example you chose but um in the book you're dealing with swing and uh then a uh, XMPP library, so uh, a lot of asynchrony going on, and, and you pretty much have to resolve a lot of that by callbacks and stuff. Um, and I think you actually mentioned at one point in the book that, that those callbacks are almost, you know, uh, uh, OO in an in a almost pure form because, you know, the, the objects are literally just communicating with each other by sending messages at the right times, you know, when they need to do that thing, you know. Uh Um, And that that struck me as interesting as I was reading and watching the code develop and stuff because, uh, you know, a lot of times we do, you know, even, even maybe model something fairly well but then execute it almost linearly, you know, with the, you know, call this, then call this, then call this. Uh, which really isn't all that different from procedural code, but with objects involved. You know. Yeah. Was that intentional, like in the selection of your example, or did that just fall out of, of uh, the code naturally?
3: bit of both, I think. Um, yeah. The style that we present in the book is that you, know, you, you create a graph of objects that talk to each other, you poke them, and they just sit there ticking away Making the system run, uh, and you sort of step back. You don't care how they do it um, after you've wired them together, and uh, and and that style does, like you say, does fit an event-driven system much better than a batch-driven system, uh, or a or a system that's doing a lot of transformations, like a like a web app has an event-driven layer at the bottom handling the HTTP request, but then it's getting the resources and transforming them into representations to to send. Back to the clients, that bit is is very transformational, a bit more batchy, a bit more functional in style. Um, so we we picked uh, we yeah so we sort of picked a, an example that demonstrated this style well. Uh, and you know a lot of systems we write do fit that style. They are event driven. They're doing messaging or you know, there's a GUI aspect to them or whatever. Um, so uh, yeah, a bit of both.
1: I like also that you chose that strategy because I think people view invented systems and stuff as, as just more difficult to test in general, you know, with the callbacks and stuff. And you actually, in the book, you have several chapters uh, in the third section about, you know, how do you test separate threads, separate processes, stuff like that, you know, where something mm-hmm. is ha- happening in a different stream of execution. I thought that was really great of you to t- tackle what's traditionally considered difficult.
3: You know? Yes. I mean, it is difficult. Those are some techniques that we've used to simplify it somewhat. It doesn't take away the difficulty altogether. You have to be very vigilant when working on tests of asynchronous systems, not to let race conditions and things like that slip into your tests and then make them become unreliable.
2: Yeah, and, and the other thing is, is you know as we've seen with things like Node, is, is that there probably are sort of limits on how much you can understand a completely event driven system. It's, it probably doesn't scale up conceptually or cognitively that well. You I think the
3: nodes style of lots and lots of closures, callbacks yeah. all nested in and out of each other. Well, I've mm. seen that done in GUI programs, uh, you know, back in the days when most desktop apps were rich clients. And yeah, you just can't maintain that. But objects are a technique that let you uh, tackle that complexity because you you build these little communicating event handling state machines and then you plug them together into richer behaviors and, and as we say in the book that plugging together is a declarative description of what you want the system to do as long as you're focusing on making these things compose cleanly and be easy to understand when you compose how they behave when you know predictably that when you compose them, they'll behave predictably. I think that's one of the sort of uh, tricks that we maybe we don't really sort of mention it much in the book, but it's kind of like key to this style, uh, and 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 that does help tackle the complexity uh, because now you're working at a higher level. You've created a new language, lifted yourself up to where you can now describe uh, things closer to your application domain, and, and, and work in in more you know bigger chunks of functionality.
1: You have a neat uh, metaphor in the book uh, too. kind of along these lines is you talk about the code in main as a matchmaker, you yeah. know, that you have all these objects that are, they do their own thing and main's job is just to introduce everybody, you know, oh yeah, you're going to get together with him and do this, you know.
3: Hmm. Yeah, that was, that, that, that was sort of in contrast to a mediator, uh, that, that, that sort of terminology we used in that you know, a mediator sits in the middle and doesn't actually introduce objects to each other but just goes, well, I'm going to tell you to do something I'm going to ask you something and then I'm going to tell him to do something uh, and, what, and our, our sort of style is well, we have this thing that we call the you know, matchmaker or whatever, introduction so and just goes, okay, you talk to him, you talk to him you talk to him, I, I know the way that you talk to each other so that I know that you're compatible off you go and then t- and then steps back, and we'll get garbage collected away.
0: I think that really ties back into the whole concept of tell, don't ask. And mm. and you actually said ask in there. I'm going to ask him this, and then tell this other guy this. And you know, so yeah, you're still telling, but you're you're asking in certain circumstances to mediate the connection, as opposed yeah. to just saying, okay, this is your new friend, and this is how you're going to interact with them.
1: Yeah. I think we should talk a little bit about the format of the book. Um, I'm a big chess player and uh, in chess there's a, a classic book called um, My System by Nimzovich and uh, it's a really great book where the first half of the book he kind of explains his thinking and then the second half of the book he gets into these involved examples. Hmm. Um, and and uh, as I was reading your book I kept thinking of Nimzovich's chess book because oh, right. It's uh, it's kind of similar. The the first uh, third, I guess, chunk, um, you explain your thinking in these processes and why you make these decisions, and then the second uh, chunk of the book is one long, uh, large example, which I thought was a wonderful way to get a, get around the problem of, uh, you know, technical book examples usually being too trivial. Yeah by devoting a whole section to it, you were able to tackle something uh, fairly big. And then, uh, and then in the third section, uh, you basically just did, uh, you know, digging into details. You know, here's some of what we did, and here's some of the complications that arise if you follow that line further, or things like that. And it, I really like the format of the book. How did you um, land on that?
2: That's good. I mean, the, the, I, I felt quite strongly about having a longer example, because I was getting very tired of, you know, the first round of books is, is, you know, how to how to test drive a list, you know, and it's or a, or a stack. I think it's stacks rather than lists, and you know that that's a good place to get started. But then now I have to write my some real code, um, and I felt that, that a lot of what I saw was was what I was seeing around with with people who hadn't quite understood how to scale it up. Um, and particularly the other thing that we weren't seeing that people understood was the outside in thing that we do, you know, actually starting from the um, from the outside of the system and trying to figure out what it's supposed to do and then drilling in. And the, there are other schools of thought, you know, of, of test driven where they sort of start more, start more in the middle and work their way out. Um, so I, I was quite sort of keen that we do that. Um, we kind of ran out of space and time because the next plan or the plan for the next few chapters was to show, was to introduce a you know, a sudden change in direction and to show how the the system coped with that. You know I think we were going to go web-based instead of swing-based. Which you never got around to because um, partly it was long enough already. Um, And partly it it, it was, you know, we were running out of time. Um, yeah perhaps if we go if we get to visit again we can do that yeah or well, second edition <laughs> but the, oh. the
3: story the story arc of that example actually came together quite nicely at, at the end which was you know we, we start with this code that we are not apparently having any design style in at all it's just all smashed into main and then Uh, slowly through, you know, adding tests and refactoring, some structure emerges. And by the end of the example, you have a very clean ports and adapters architecture, but we haven't started out making one. It's just something that we know the the things we want to separate from each other are separated by the ports and adapters architecture, and the refactoring that we do to cause that separation ends up making the ports and adapters architecture emerge from the process. Uh, So I thought, yeah, I think the... Although we didn't have our entire grand plan for that example, no, didn't I I think the actual, the actual uh, story that it, it it told turned out very well.
2: And I think one of the things that became clearer as we were working on it, because it took about six runs to get that kind of balance, but I wanted to get a balance between something that looked realistic, you know, including some mistakes, and something that didn't look like we were completely idiots and didn't know what we were doing. Um, but I think. One of the things that that became clearer was that this idea of leaving rough patches in the code until we were until we'd figured out where it was supposed to go, and having that a little bit of tolerance, not too much, but a little bit of tolerance to um, unfactored code,
3: yeah, Um, gives an option, yeah, yeah, which I think had
2: uh, been as, as clear. Sorry, before we started, at least, at least for me.
3: No, I think you're right. And and it's certainly something that people have commented on. That They're like, oh my god, at the start of your example, your code is such a mess. It's like, well, it's such a tiny piece of code, I don't really feel the need to make it really clean. It's literally a a screen full of code, I can see it in one glance. Um, It's only as it gets bigger that I need to carve pieces off so that I don't have to think about them anymore and focus in on the thing that I want to change. Yeah, and, and I don't know how to do that yet. Until I've actually got the things in there that I n- then start feeling that, I, that you know this bit I don't want to look at. I'm looking at this bit All right now. I can see where where the edges need to be put in.
2: And of course, the caveat to that is we do actually go back and do that, where rather than just carrying on writing more code.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just
2: skip that later step, right? Uh, yeah. The book
1: talks a lot about uh, your. Deferred decisions, which is basically what you're talking about right now. How, you know, yeah, maybe I could refactor this now, but if I wait a little longer and see how it actually ends up getting used, I have
2: more information and I can probably make a
1: better choice,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a subtle balance that comes, I think, only comes with experience because you have to go too far in each direction to realize where the boundary, a, a good boundary is. I think, yeah, you just continually (laughs) oscillate around uh, what the optimum
3: level is because you can never really tell it. it, I mean, it's very context-dependent. On a bigger team, then you have to be a little bit more careful about organizing your code because it's so easy for it to snowball out of control when lots of people are just, you know, being... When lots of people are deferring their design decisions at once, uh, then, you know, it can just get out of control quite easily. You have to be very careful to decide the, uh, based on how big your team is and experience levels and and, and what have you and language you know and tool support and all sorts exactly how much mess is is, is, uh, is bearable
0: so I want to hark back a little bit more to the beginning of the book just for a second one thing that you said that I thought was really interesting was that as the project is getting started one of the things you test is deployment hmm and yeah. uh, you know, I, I understand, you know, some of the benefits of that where, you know, you you know that everything's in place, the right technology's there, the right packages are installed, things like that. Um but uh what what's the best way of doing that? I mean, do you set do you stand up kind of a duplicate of production and then deploy to that or
3: Well when, when I've done it and it's worked best, I've deployed into production, you know, within a week or two of a starting the project. Um obviously that that depends very much on the organization you're in. In some places it takes six months and 19 teams to commission a, a machine <laughs> uh, and that is unfortunately not an exaggeration um, and in in some you can get a VM you know within a minute by going onto a, a web service and hitting a button or something so um, uh, but certainly you know trying to get it trying to get the, the deployment as smooth as possible so then you can just not really think about it much and and it's not just a deployment it's like the integration into the entire environment the runtime environment that you're going to be integrating with so you know, how do i get it onto a machine how do i talk to i don't know the you know the, the data the data sources that, that they want me to integrate with so not so much a database that I'm going to use internally to my system, I might not. I might defer that decision for as long as I possibly can. It's more about well, if I know that I'm going to be receiving market data from such and such a provider, well, first thing we've got to do is work out can we integrate that with that easily, and think about lead times if I have to get licensing and approved, and you know, there's a whole bunch of issues. That if you leave it too late, it can sometimes be too late, and you've got to find out as early as possible. Uh, and then, as your system grows, like little changes then become. Easier to automatically, you know, to, to automatically deploy. You can change your deployment more easily because you understand that your system works, and 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 any if it starts failing, you've only got a small thing. You're broken. If you leave it late, it can just be an enormous amount of work to actually get a deployment uh, process automated. And and it's I just think... because of all the different things that can break.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's one of the things that's very difficult to explain to people who've never done any of this. Is if you get to work on a really clean project with the whole soup to nuts where it's done properly from scratch it is although it looks very you know constraining the rest of it is how much more comfortable it is that you can just you know type in a bit of code commit it and be certain enough that actually you haven't broken anything and you can just carry on and do the next thing and just think about one thing at a time and it's it's like a lot of things in this world it's very difficult to explain until you've experienced it um, and I think a lot of people that I see, they get closer to it, but, but they don't fully appreciate how much further they can go.
0: Right. Yeah, There's what, a
1: really good chart in the book, uh, kind of talking about this, where um, you you show how... The process feels so heavy up front because you're writing that first end-to-end test. You're getting the entire, you know, integration, deployment, and stuff set up, and it feels like, wow, you know, we've put in two weeks worth of work, and we've only done this one test that doesn't really do much, you know, and and um, it, how it feels so heavy. But then uh, the the graph shows that you know as you go on over time now because all of that's integrated and set up and the the process is in there you know that over time it's just smoothly adding features after that and almost flat lines you know Uh, and I, i thought that was real like i loved that picture when i saw it i was like oh yeah that's a great way to think about it
2: i mean it's sometimes it is a bit problematic sometimes some gigs you know sometimes when i started on a contract and quite often on, on, a, on a site that's a bit of a mess, one of the biggest messes is the build. So I then disappear into a corner and you know spend some considerable period of time messing around with Ant or whatever it is in, in the Java world, and cursing and swearing and being generally unpleasant. But I can't stand that stuff. It has to be done, and, and there's no visible progress whatsoever. All they can see is this day rate being spent and lots of cursing. And um, you know what's going on. Because what I'm actually doing is trying to get the thing under control and stable, so you can actually tell what the hell's in the build and what's not. Um, so you can actually move on to the next stage, but that's often a that's often a difficult transition.
0: Yeah, one one thing that uh, I really it really kind of hit home. For me in a couple of different ways One was as I was talking to David Brady the other day um, He's the only Regular on the Ruby Rose show That's local where I can actually go And have lunch with him In this case um, we had breakfast anyway We were talking about some other things And then we were talking about the last job we worked at And um, We we meant you know it was basically We we both agreed that uh, When they laid us off That they had laid off um, Basically the, the people who set the The rhythm for the team and when I was reading this section of the book what really what really kind of hit home to me there was that this is kind of setting that rhythm like that whole process of setting this up you write your first end-to-end test you get all the unit tests that go in between you do all of the other things that need to happen you make sure that the deployments are working that the CI is set up and then um that kind of does set the rhythm for for the way that things get developed because then people start to follow that process. They start writing those tests and they, you know, they do those things that uh, demonstrate that the system works and and allow you know, further tests to guide the development process. Um, And, uh, all of those things that kind of get set up are there. And, you know, as the team adopts them, and if you can maintain that adoption, which that team didn't after we were gone, um, then you, you really do get that rhythm and you can, you you move forward because you know, which direction you're heading. Well, at least
2: for the next week. but Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: I think that idea of rhythm is, yeah, it it, is good. Yeah. That, uh, it is. It gives you a feeling of of, of accomplishment of, of achievement as you you know go through this this process of like yeah write write the sort of functional test or acceptance test and then build out the units and see that they're still working and watch the acceptance test like, you know gradually pass more and more until it is complete and know that you c- can confidently push that into production. I think it's yeah it, it is a sort of uh, sort of comfortable feeling it's not you don't have that sort of worry that I see a lot of teams have oh. uh, that they have no idea if this change has broken something or not until maybe a QA team three weeks later will tell them that something seemingly unrelated has stopped working you know that, that kind of always have that sort of sword of Damocles hanging over your head is, is right. it, it's not, yeah, it's not it, it makes the, the job unpleasant really and it yeah. shouldn't be. So it's, it's a fun job it should be uh more enjoyable
0: than it yes. is. One other thing that in contrast to that project, another project that we built that was highly coupled and, you know, it, it really had a lot of the problems that you point out that the tests will tell you are there you know, if we had been following this process and been aware that having trouble with the tests in those ways indicated those problems, it really would have helped us set set the right rhythm, you know, where um. it's, this is the process you follow, and, and here are the telltale signs that you're doing something wrong. Um. Yeah.
3: I think that, you know, uh, that listening to the tests is absolutely key, and and sort of like stopping the line and fixing a problem so that the difficulty goes away is what Makes the whole process sustainable, and without it, it can just like grind to a halt. Where you've got, you know, well, I've seen thousand line tests uh, where they're all setting up like you know, six hundred mock objects, and it's just think, well, that that's not helping.
0: You know. <laughs> Only six thousand. Know, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah.
3: Very very dedicated to the testing, but yeah. But, yeah. But it, 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 uh, at the end of the day. You can make your life easier, and you know.
2: I, a couple, just to step back a minute, they, they, so one of the things is, I mean, you know, we all have our sort of canonical projects, and, and the one I worked on. One of the guys said later that the great thing about having all this infrastructure in place was you just didn't have to remember stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you could focus on what if, whatever it is you were doing now, and not worry about not worry about the rest of the world, um, because you had this 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 safety net to catch you, which, you know, you have to be careful make sure it really is a safety net and hasn't got holes in, but on the whole, if you have the whole thing ticking over and releasing, that's, that's probably all right. Um, the other thing, actually, just to mention at this point, Nat was talking about making progress, is there's this sort of management psychology book called The Progress Principle, which says that what, you know, what does people in is not making progress, yeah. even if it's just a little bit of progress. That's, that's what keeps people going and makes them happier. And the great thing about this sort of style of development is you are, on the whole, always making progress. And it's, um, it has its stresses, but it's a much more comfortable place to be than trying to do release without the infrastructure. And and that's fact, a
1: good, tra- sorry, that's a
2: good point, right? That success is addictive, right? So. Oh, is that true? It, yeah. It, it does cause you problems in some organizations because… You're not seen as sufficiently committed because you go home at five o'clock, and <laughs> at least is a lunchtime rather than a weekend, and all this kind of stuff. In fact, I know a team that that has had that problem is is that because the thing goes so smoothly, um, they've been sort of downgraded in by their manage, by man, in management perception because it's obviously a simple obviously that old classic. Oh, that's obviously a simple problem. Yeah, I love those. Like
1: yeah. when uh, Blizzard's about to release Diablo three or something, they'll always put up pictures of their programmers' rooms, and you see the guy's desk, and then his little uh, pallet sleeping bag behind it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's like it's almost like they're bragging about that, and I think, wow, there's a process gone tragically wrong.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the other example I was thinking of was um, Palomino was working at. Um, he was working with a team that was doing. It was some kind of bank front, uh, investment bank front, trading front office thing, and their tradition was that they'd do a release and then sit in fear the next morning while they got, the phones would ring and they get shouted at. <laughs> and mm. and um, the yeah, so he put a few things in. I mean, he wasn't you know the whole soup to nuts, but he started putting a few things in place and, you know, a bit of build infrastructure and some sanity testing and stuff. And then they did the first release in the new regime and they sat there on the next morning and nothing happened. And they were astonished, you know, how could this be? And they'd never had that sort of, they'd never had that sort of um, ease of release.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's so funny to me too how, how many of these really do get downgraded to, oh, gee, that's so simple. Um, And, you know, I think think a lot of us have have been at that place where it's, you know, you don't get credit because you've done it right in the first place and now it just kind of flows in with everything else.
2: It's a bit like years ago when my research I had a pal and she said, when she first started doing academics, she'd go to some conference and see some big shot. and He'd present his new findings and she'd go, oh, that's so obvious. And then after she'd learned a while, so she goes to some conferences some. she goes, you know, see some big shot, give, present his findings. She go, that's amazing. That's so obvious,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and, right, right. you know, the obvious stuff, you know, the simple stuff is hard to do on the whole. So so you, wanna you go,
1: to I want to take the conversation in a slightly different direction for a bit. Sure. But I think another advantage of how you guys, did the book in in process is that um, I found just lots of small little great tips that that you guys give as as you're working through the problem, and I think the reason you were able to do that is that you know it, it really was your process, and you're just doing oh, yeah. real programming, and 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 you're doing that, and then it was oh yeah, and usually when I do this, it's because you hmm. know. And I didn't know, was that that intentional with the way you set up the book, or was that just natural out of how how it it flowed out of the process?
2: Well, again, certainly from my my side, I wanted a book that was based on concrete experience, because that's what everyone is desperate for. You know, how do you do this really? Um, And the first generation of books were all about the concepts in isolation, or most of them were. and we wanted to be, you know, we'd given it with a second or third generation of book. It was now, now, you know, what do we do every day? And now we've actually tried this for a bit. So that was certainly a motivation for me was was to, to fold in, you know, real experience.
1: There's some awesome tips in there. Like um, some of my favorites, I, I wrote a bunch of them down. But, like, uh, one is uh, you're, you're doing a refactoring at some point and you notice that the class is violating uh, the SRP, Single Responsibility Principle, and the way you notice that is because um, of the include statements uh, that you're including a bunch of, uh, you know, unrelated packages.
2: Oh, the imports, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> right, right, imports, yeah, sorry. Uh, I use Ruby more often than Java. but. Yeah, sure. um, but uh, yeah, it's that you have these dependencies on unrelated packages, so obviously you're doing multiple things because they're unrelated, you know, so I thought that was a great tip You, um, there's a great rant on uh, logging in there at one point from S- S- Steve I think, yeah. yeah there's a great rant on logging but it was really good, I mean I've never really thought about logging like that and and you made you challenged my my beliefs in that you know that it is a feature and and you know it's it made me wonder like frameworks like Rails uh, and Ruby which we're all used to you know they make all those decisions for you you mm-hmm. know and that, that can be a good thing but but it can also be a bad thing right so
2: yeah I, 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 yeah
3: I think that our preference is more for. Having small, self-contained things that do something well, but that we can easily hook up into a system, rather than a framework that tries to do everything. That then you have to add plugins to. Um, so, I mean, the Java world has got like huge, hulking frameworks like Java EE and Servlets and Spring. And and personally, I prefer to stay away from those and and just like build things out of you know convenient little libraries. <laughs>
0: I think it's funny that uh, you you present the plug model as kind of an, an antithesis to the the simple single responsibility principle, where you know basically yeah you have this uh, framework and you use all these different plugins, not not to simplify it but to add more stuff on to what it actually does.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I
3: mean, there, obviously there's a place for plugins and there's a place for frameworks. Yeah. But, uh I don't know. I think for long term evolution you know frameworks uh you know whole app frameworks like j 2 E or rails so uh, i've never really written any rails but uh you know they they will have a sudden step change at some point where you know they've supported you really well so far but now you just need to do something that's way out of its of its uh zone and and you're sort of like well, how do i how do I find out how to make this huge piece of code do this thing that it doesn't really know how to do? And that that can be a problem. So, you know, I, I sort of prefer to uh, take more time writing code if it will save me time changing it later.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's my preference. So
2: understanding it, yeah. That's a good point, yeah.
0: Well, that, that was a point that you made at the beginning was that, um, you know... It's ultimately not going to make a huge difference, you know, to the machine how you wrote the code, and so ultimately you should be optimizing it for, for the developer for readability, and then that's a point that I think Kent Beck made when he was on the show too, and yeah, it, it's just something that rings rings right to my mind. But anyway,
2: well, again, it's it's a very you know obviously a very old idea, um, and to you know go back to the thing about the imports and the the clash of packages. But it's the same, it, that's a symptom of, you know, you try within a compilation unit or whatever it is, or a code unit, you try and get a coherent language. Um, and some of that is made visible by inappropriate imports. Um, and again, I think possibly we didn't stress this enough. And certainly when I'm, you know, coaching or training, I, I, I keep going on and on and on about um, trying, to, trying to make it readable. Trying to trying to be clear and readable about what, what it is we, what it is you're, you're trying to achieve. Yeah.
3: and and focusing on the language being yeah. careful about language. You know, that tells you a lot. You know, like if you see, uh, you know, in in the middle of my application domain model, a whole load of stuff about XML or TCP or something, huh. then I, that, that that you know that to me is a smell. I'm not that shows that I'm I'm sort of uh, mixing two domains up. In one place, instead of uh, separating the concerns out more clearly, um, and I'm, I'm probably missing some abstractions that would make the code more easy to understand. If I could, you know, pull the all the TCP stuff out into something, and you know, push more towards that ports and adaptive architecture, for example, um, yeah. and and you know, you can actually, you know, look, you can analyze the language in your code and get a lot of useful information out of it. I've done. Some sort of latent semantic indexing of code, and you can see, oh look, you know, if I take my uh, domain description, you know, requirement documents or whatever, and and I and, and then I applied the, you know, then I compare the language in that against the language in various packages in my code. I can see which ones are my domain model and which ones aren't, uh, and which ones, uh, you know, if my domain model is like not very close to my. Like natural text domain description, then I know that that code is not really very clean and can dig into it. So really rough and ready sort of uh, analysis of the natural language text in in your uh, in your code could give you like you know quite useful uh, feedback.
2: So one of the things we we try and avoid is naming collaborators after patterns. So we try and avoid the XYZ service and the Thing Manager and the Thing Manager service factory. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, I guess you, you laugh, but it's all true. Um, and it's incredibly, it's ama- a lot of these things I just, from time to get I get reminded about them. I had it a while ago where we renamed a user service, or it was something like a user service, and we renamed it to a, I forget what it was, counterparties or something like that. Um, or, yeah, let's say, counterparties, and all of a sudden, various methods on this service just didn't read right, they just didn't make sense, and it became very clear, very, very quickly that they were in the wrong place, and they they belonged in some, and and you see lots of code where, because something is called a service, you're not really, you're less pressured into getting the right features on that service, on, on that object, And it starts to become a dumping ground for anything associated with that, you know, that concept. And then it becomes impossible, you know, and it it drags um, dependencies all over the place, all through the code. Um, And it's a really nice small example of something as simple as not naming something a service, but giving it a a meaningful domain name um, can change the way, can change what you see and can, can force the code in a different direction. and and, and again I I regularly forget this and I have to be forcibly reminded by some
0: code naming seems like you you should name it after what it does instead of calling it service factory thingy majigger
2: well what you try and do which is sometimes a real struggle is you try and name it after something in the domain Um, so and and the trouble is in a lot of domains there aren't good for example there aren't good collective nouns
0: Mm -hmm.
2: so you know the classic is rather than having a um, customer service, you might have an address book. You know, because that makes more sense than you know. That's relevant to whatever of code as you're writing.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, some, like I say, sometimes it's really, really hard to find a good name, and you sort of sit there staring into the space for half a day.
0: And that that naming seems Friday like it's a hugely I'm important. important. Sorry, I. Yeah. No. Absolutely.
4: A, that that was my fault. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, it, it just seems like a hugely important part of of what you're doing, you know, and the approach that you're taking. And yeah. it seems like one of the, the, the hardest problems. I mean, when I'm working with people, I think... Um, you know, one of the, the blocks that I see is really really is naming. I mean it seems like it seems like a minor thing, like, you know, you could you could write the same code without, you know, even if you have a poor name, but but in truth, you know, I, I see a lot so often I see a light bulb go on as soon as you introduce a new name for a concept and you do that sort of all all through the book I was I was uh, kind of flipping through trying to find a good example I couldn't find um, one of my favorite examples but uh, one of the things that 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 I I went past was just like the point where you you introduce the the idea of a snapshot you know a sniper snapshot and and that was like you know and and that doesn't you know it isn't the sniper it it identifies a state of, of the sniper and it's a value object and it was a term that I had not thought to use in the past you know mm-hmm. for, for anything like that and it kind of opened up kind of opened up things for me because I realized okay you know this is we don't we can actually have this this object which identifies a little bit more about it than just like a string which it which is the state or something like that and mm-hmm. um, you know it, it, it seems like that's that's such an aha moment for a lot of people and, and for me. And I don't know, you know, how do you do that? How do you? Is, are there are there drills you can do to just sort of expand your ability for for naming things? Because it, it seems like it's so important.
3: Probably, I'm I think. Not sure. Go on. Yeah, I think trying not to name things after patterns. Yes. Is is like a really good thing to do. Uh, I, I was on a project where there was it was calculating quotes uh, where you calculate the price for something and then you add some extra values in and create some extra fields in was like an Extra fields, factory, uh, or something. It was what I called it. Yeah, it was like, what on earth is this doing? We, it was actually calculating the fees, and you'd you'd pass two different kinds in depending on, you know, some reason that we couldn't work out. Uh, and actually, there was like, oh well, there's just two different uh, ways of calculating fees depending on the kind of client. Okay, we've got, you know, an institutional fees or a, or an individual client fees. Oh right, and suddenly the whole logic, is like the reason for that. Particular piece of code was clear. When it was just patterns, it wasn't clear. And I, th- I think that's key. Maybe it wasn't a factory, maybe it was a strategy or something. But the, the, the things that if you actually write down what it is rather than how it's doing it. Suddenly, because it's the reason for it to exist that's difficult to understand. And that is the reason for something to be changed, uh, and that's what you're trying to, you know, what 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 the code should be expressing to the reader. Uh, why does that code exist? Not what does it do? Because you can see what it does. Any competent programmer should be able to look at a piece of code and, and see the patterns that it applies. Uh, right. So there's no point in putting them in the names. You should just be able to look at yeah. it. And say, well, that that object creates another object for us a factory. We don't need to call it a
2: factory. I I think, and I'm getting to the point where. You know, if I'm positioned to hire coders again, never mind a coding test. I'd have them, you know, in certainly in my case, write in English, write, write some write some English. You know, see if they can string a couple of paragraphs together. Because if they can't do that, the chances of being able to string some pr- readable code together are pretty low. That's, that's a really good point. There's
1: another aw- awesome example in the book. I can't remember exactly where it comes up, but it's when you're uh, you've been passing strings around for a while. And then you finally replace those strings with a type. And then by doing that, you know, that gave an obvious place where uh, some functionality that that you hadn't known where fit then fit on that type, you know. And kind of along the same lines about how that just opens up, you know, Once once you find the right concept for this thing, then a lot of times that's, oh, yeah, and that's where this part belongs, you know.
4: Yeah. Somebody introduced the term string typing for that recently. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, when, when, yeah. a, when a string really ought to be a a type on its own, I I, I love that term. You know, sometimes yeah. when I'm when I'm pairing, I actually feel, um, I I feel a little embarrassed of that naming pause. You know, um, because I feel like, well, we should be writing code now, but I, what I really want to do is I want to sit back, back I want to stare into space until the right name occurs to me. Do um, so, you ever have that problem?
2: Oh yes. So what? suggests leaving a thesaurus on the desk. My experience mm. with that, it's, it's useful, but I've never, it's its a good thing to do, but I've never actually found a name in the thesaurus that was right. <laughs> but it's a good, if nothing else, it's a good reminder. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I if I can't
3: think of a name quickly, I'll probably put in something that's obviously a in a, a temporary name, a something, something thingy or something like that, because I do a lot of work in Java and and, and refactoring in Java is, is you know, less than a second to change a name across the entire code base with modern Java development tools so Java code is very malleable so you don't have to decide very early, you can just you know try something, think, oh, yeah that's, yeah, that's a roughly, yeah, it's okay, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that name in for now, and then a week later go, oh, that's a much better name, boom, it's changed oh. you know, instantly. So I think, you know, we, the, the better the refactoring tools are, the, 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 the less stressful the naming is. As long as you're always, like, trying to improve the names all the time and, and, and are thinking about the naming, uh, you don't have to do it instantly that, yeah, write that class or write that method. You should, often, you often you can, but if you can't, it's not a big deal.
2: Yeah, you should tell the story about the um, that .NET project you were dropped on. Oh
3: yeah, so so I was dropped in on a .NET project that was a day before release, and they and it was late, and so they're like, "Oh, Yo, you join this project?" Uh, and I was, uh, my thought was, "Well, you know, I know." I know uh, Fred Brooks says I can put my feet up because at least then I won't be making a project any later. But actually, I, I, this project had had someone on it who was absolutely fanatical about naming, to the point that the rest of the team really <laughs> were annoyed by him. Um, but I, I was given something that needed to be added to the system. I looked for the identifiers. There they were. The classes were all named. It made sense. I could find how things had to be related. I did the fixes. I finished it. You know, in, in, in a couple of hours, it was like amazing. I really had expected to join this project and just be sitting there trying to understand code for days and days and days. And actually, it was really really clear. Uh, and that was because of that fanatical approach to naming and careful careful separation of you know of dead domains, uh, the different domains in the code, so they all had consistent naming conventions and 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 clearly expressed why they were doing things in domain terms. So, yeah. So I think it it does pay off.
0: So Fred, Fred Brooks is the guy that wrote the mythical man month. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay. he said,
3: yeah, adding, adding people to a late project makes it later. It's his, it's his law.
0: Right. Yep. All and right. This is we we kinda... need to get to the pick soon. Is, is there anything else that we want to cover before we wrap this up?
1: Yeah. There's one thing I had that was kind of a tangent to what we were just talking about, about improving understanding. But, uh, in the book, you talk about, um, you, you go through a section where you you build a test and you run it and it fails, but it fails for a silly reason, you know, that's not really related to what you're doing. And then you spend some time uh, getting it to fail for the right reason. And, you know, we see that all the time in TDD. Um, but uh, it's funny, a, a lot of times when I do see that, I think, oh, that person's being a little silly. I mean, we obviously know what's going on there. We can just skip that step. But I really like how uh, you guys kind of formalized it and said that by improving the diagnostic, what we're doing is improving our understanding, right? Or showing that we know what's going on so that then, oh, yeah, now I know that I can do this because I understand what's happening here. And I really like that process, you know, of how, how it was the knowledge we were gaining more than the code we were writing. I thought that was a great focus.
2: Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we, we mentioned it somewhere that, that, again, a lot of people, teams that we see f- seem to forget that, that tests aren't supposed to fail occasionally, you know, that they're not doing their job if they never fail. Um, no! <laughs> I know that's hard to believe, but um, but and then when they do fail, it'd be really nice if they told you they took the trouble to tell you what the problem was, uh, particularly at the system level, a higher level test. Unit tests are, tend to be a bit more obvious, um, and this was something that, that I think certainly um, Tim McKinnon pushed in the very early days was that you know put the damn comment in. It's not a big you know it doesn't have to be a big deal, but just to take you to the right place immediately and not waste anybody's time. Um, and, I, you know, I've certainly had this experience with system-level tests where, you know, it goes red. And then I'm then dropped in, you know, three or four days of stepping and debugging and tracing, trying to figure out what on earth happened because I hadn't quite got around to, uh, you know, putting in the, inf- the appropriate infrastructure.
0: Oh, come on. You guys didn't say anything about feedback being important. We must <laughs>
1: so, so one last question before we get over to the pigs. Uh, sure. I, I didn't expect to see the word Ruby anywhere in the book, but it is actually in there. Uh, mention- yeah, you do. Uh, Nat, I guess, wrote a mock library in Ruby. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. A, a long time ago, which you say in the appendix is kind of uh, some where the genesis of some of these ideas comes from.
2: Yes. Well, so... I mean, I spent a couple of years doing small talk, so everything else is a disappointment after that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad. Josh isn't on the show.
1: Yeah. Josh is our, uh, resident small talker. He's usually here, but he couldn't make it this week, but he pretty much agrees with that directly. Yeah.
2: Bit of, bit twisted small talker.
0: <laughs> I like that bitter and twisted. Yes. All right. Well, should we get to the picks? Did I, sure. did I warn you guys about picks when I emailed you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: don't remember. I have Maybe
0: failed.
2: You mentioned
3: picks to me. Okay.
0: Oh. Uh, okay, well, picks are basically stuff that you like. It can be technical or non-technical. So, oh. So, I mean, it can be tools, it can be movies, it can be TV shows, books, whatever. Um, so, you know, if, if there's something you've enjoyed lately, just, just let us know what it is. Um, let's have Avdi start us off, just so you can kind of get a flavor for how this goes. Okay.
4: Mm, let's see. How to be a paragon of picks. Actually, I, I don't think that I have any uh, development-related uh, picks right now. Actually, here, let me throw one out. Um, it, it's it Just to sort of, of uh, spark some thought. Uh, you can subclass modules, the, the module class in Ruby, and I've been having some fun with that lately. Actually, I've been having—I've had fun with that for a long time, but uh, I've been playing with it more lately. Um, and I'm not going to go into great detail now, but, but uh, it's kind of something interesting to play with is that you can create your own kinds of modules in Ruby. Uh, so if you've never done that, play around with it sometime. Um, anyway, uh, non-development non-develop, pick. Uh, let's do a booze pick. I've done a lot of uh, sort of pricey booze picks lately so I'm gonna do a cheap booze pick um, it, teachers scotch if, if if you are on a real budget and uh, and you want some scotch that is not, not entirely undrinkable um, at, a, at a very reasonable price um, teachers is actually not that bad um, you know it's just a blended scotch it's not it's not a single malt or anything like that but uh, but I feel like, you know, all I ever do is recommend these things that are like on the top shelf and, and cost a ridiculous amount of money. So, um, so, you know, for just like an around the house scotch teachers pretty darn good. I wish I could get it around here. Usually I only get it when my mom brings some from the New o- Jersey. The
0: only scotch I've ever seen teachers use is tape. <laughs>
2: <laughs> har har. Uh, okay.
0: Is Is that your picks? Yep, that's it. All right, James, what are your picks?
1: I was dreading you calling on me this week. I actually tried several new things this week, thinking they'd make good picks. And I didn't like any of them. So I'm not picking them. So that, that's my, my gift to everyone. So then I, I decided, oh, I'll go pick an oldie but a goodie. And I, I thought of several candidates. And I went back through our pick list. And they have all been picked. So uh, so much for that idea, too. So I'm going to cheat. I was going to pick AK, Ack, a c k which is my favorite tool for just combing through uh, code base, looking for names or uh, things like that, searches. That was picked uh, way back when, of course. But I mentioned it to Avdi uh, when we were talking recently. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've switched over to Emacs, and I need to find some cool ACK integration. Uh, And he told me about uh, Full ACK, which is an Emacs extension uh, that uh blends with act and it's really great uh i i played with it a little bit this week and uh in addition to you know all the great goodness that is act it um it has some emacs niceties in it like uh it, it'll try to figure out where your project is based on which file you triggered it inside of. So if you're looking at some file and you trigger act, it, it's going to go up the tree looking for like a git directory or something like that. It's got a few uh, thing, tests that it used to try to figure out where the root of the project is, um, and you can customize that. And then it searches from there inside those files, assuming you're looking for something in the same project, uh, which is really nice. And um, it also gives you ways to search in the same kind of the file you're in right now or, um, you know, you can search in any file in the project. So if you're in a Ruby file and you just want to find something in Ruby files, then you can uh, trigger it a certain way. Uh, And you can have a look at my... uh, uh, Emacs files. If you want to see how I configured it, I'll put a link in the show notes for how I installed it, and then another one for the uh, key bindings I gave it to do the two different kinds of searches: same file and any file. So, anyways, if you're an Emacs user and you like ack, uh, which we've recommended before, then full ack is an even cooler way to use Emacs, in my opinion.
4: And that's I knew this fine. would happen.
1: Do this for that?
4: I, knew, I knew this would happen. I, I I suggested it to you like last week, and you already know like a thousand more things about how to use it than I do.
1: <laughs> I just looked into it a little, so it was really awesome. It was a good good pick. So really, Opti deserves the
4: credit for that one. But that's my. Pick. Now you have to teach me how to really use it. <laughs> All right.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to go next. Um, So my first pick is something that we read or listened to as part of the podcast mastermind, which is a group of guys that I talk to about podcasting and business and stuff. And um, our assigned reading for for the last meeting was Earl Nightingale's The Strangest Secret. And I'm not sure if you guys have uh, read it or heard it. It actually was recorded for people who were working for Earl Nightingale in his in his organization, um, <clears throat> he recorded it back in the fifties, like fifty six, I want to say, um, and he actually recorded it on a vinyl vinyl um, record, and. He, he gave it out to his employees, and his play employees came back and said, Hey, I, I need to get copies of this for my wife or my brother or whoever. And so he actually recorded it and um, sold it. And it's like, what, like 35, 40 minutes of, of audio. And uh, honestly, it has totally changed the way that I think about uh, what I want to do and and how I spend my time and what's important to me. and um it, it, it was just amazing to me how a 30 or 40 minute, uh, audio could really, you know, help me approach life in a different way. And so I highly, highly recommend it. I'll put links in for both the, um, the, the transcribed version and the MP3 version on Amazon. Um, since that's where I got it, it was like 30 cents or a buck or something. I don't remember exactly for the audio and the, the Kindle version is only a couple of bucks as well. But anyway, just, just incredible. It's, it's totally changed the way I, I look at some of this stuff. Um, my, my other pick is, uh, basically just, just in general networking. Um, I highly recommend that people go out and find other people that they can connect with and chat with. Um, I have a small group of uh, Ruby and Rails freelancers that I connect with. Some of them are on the Ruby Freelancer Show. Um, a bunch more of them are just in this Skype chat that we have. But uh, th- those guys have really helped me in a lot of ways figure out some of this stuff and and, and know what I'm doing as far as building my business and, and doing things right. So, um, you know, just go out and find a bunch of people who think like you and, um, maybe think a little different than you, have a little bit different experience, but you who know, you can bounce ideas off and really kind of get a feel for um, what you ought to do and what you ought not do and, and uh, you know, just, just make that work for you because it really does pay off to be able to, uh, you know, kind of think out loud with these guys and have them tell you what they think. Um, Steve, do you want to go next with your picks? Okay.
2: So I've got a couple of things. Um, on the technical side, you probably had this already, Nat and I are involved in a on the side on a little startup based around the Raspberry Pi. Have you heard of this yet? So the the Raspberry Pi is a well slightly larger than credit-sized computer that's intended. Yeah, um, that's intended for. It was originally. It's intended for education, but a lot of geeks have been jumping on it. Um, I think it's a little ARM chip. Seven hundred arm, seven hundred megahertz arm chip, and about four gig of RAM, and quite a powerful digital processing thing uh, chip. Um, entertainingly, it's one to two orders of magnitude than the machines I did my PhD research on. Um, so, although it's physically small, I'm not sure it counts as a small machine.
3: But it it's costs great. Like Twenty
2: five dollars. So it costs. A- yeah, thirty five dollars. Um, the motivation for the guy, the guy who started it is the University of Cambridge. Um, was he was noticing over the years that the kids knew less and less as they came in because what was happening was that um, all the machines they were playing with were locked down uh, that they were either you know expensive home computer which they weren't allowed to play with or the, the ones in school where the USB ports had all been sold, uh, super glued or there were consoles where there was no way in and that they, they no longer had access to tinkering and so this is a completely, in fact, it comes without that case when you when you buy it for twenty five dollars, thirty five dollars, um, and it's got pins on on it so you can attach all sorts of external devices and things, and it's it's designed to be, a, you know, a reasonably functional, um, nearly disposable computer that um, anybody can play with, and there's been it's it's been exploding over here, and to to some extent in the states, um, and. You know it, it's, it's, uh, I've re- returned to my inner solderer because I, you know, I haven't done any soldering for many decades. And I've just started doing it again, putting boards together. Um,
0: yeah, so James, ten- don't, don't you have a Raspberry Pi?
2: Yeah,
1: you guys timed that well. I I got obsessed with it a couple of weeks ago, and I've just been. I got one. And I've been hooking it to everything. I I can't believe how much fun it is to tinker with. You know, trying to get it to work with this. I get it to where I could stream iTunes off my Mac and, and oh, then things. You know and. And uh, played games on it. Uh, I compiled Ruby on it, which took uh, like two hours just to compile Ruby on it, you know, but it was yeah. still fun. And, and uh, yeah, the GPIO ports where you can just hook it to anything and you can even from Ruby, you know, you can access yeah. those ports, you know, it's yeah. really great. It's totally, totally a hacker thing.
2: Very yeah. happy.
0: So, so here's a Ruby Rogues exclusive. This is me unpackaging mine. I got mine a couple of days ago. All
2: right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so that's,
2: that's four of us in the room, as it were.
0: Yeah, they they just sounded cool. I talked to a few people who'd been playing with them, and there you go. Yeah, that's that's kind of cool. So oh, yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to some cool applications for it. If you guys have any ideas of things I should try out with it, just just tell me.
2: I, I'm not sure what to recommend, but there's just an ocean of material out there coming on now. Yeah, it really. If you watch their blog and
1: stuff, everybody's always got a new project that they're trying and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, and people some
3: amazing stuff with it. Yeah, uh, that someone uh, has put it in a balloon, taking photos. Uh, so you know of, of the curvature of the Earth. Um, people are making seagoing robots. Uh, with a uh, Raspberry Pi in the centre of it, um, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's great fun. It's sort of like an Arduino and a desktop sort of combined in a way. A lot of, that's the way a lot of people are using it.
2: It's it's um, and you know the obvious first ap- easy application would be something like you know a bit dull, but it'd be something like a bill monitor, because you know it'll cost a fraction of what a, you know, and you don't have to go through bloody purchasing to get to get a machine. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. For the non-technical thing, um, so I'm a great fan, there's a, a Boston surgeon called Atul Gavande, G-A-W-E-N-D-E, who's written several books and also writes for The New Yorker. And anything of his is, it's, it's really good stuff, and it's good for us because a lot of the, the issues that he faces and that he writes about, like, you know, how do you improve stuff? How do you get stuff done without killing people? well, maybe not that for us, but, um, are very relevant for us, you know, um, one, one of the books is called Better, which is, you know, how do you improve practice, the practice of what you do, and, and they're just wonderfully well written, so, uh, anything about him, but, but you can, um, and he's just had an article out recently in the, um, just talks in, in the, uh, New York, and a lot of it, I think, is available online, um, so that's my, uh, that's my reading for the reading recommendation.
0: Awesome. All right, Nat, do you have any other picks? Uh,
3: well, since uh, the Raspberry Pi, which was going to be one of mine, has been got uh, Gotcha. Go um, I'll recommend Codia uh, for iPad users, which is a, a programming environment where you can write animation and games um, and apps on your iPad in Lua. Uh, So, it's got like a a programming model, a bit like processing, um, uh, but it runs on your iPad and it's got support for multi touch and physics engine and uh, 3D meshes and 2D meshes and uh, animation and audio synthesis and all sorts. So, it's really great fun to play with. Um, uh, And you can, you know, just do it on your iPad. Uh, with the on-screen keyboard, they they've got a customized keyboard to make editing easier. Uh, it's yeah, it's really good fun. I highly recommend it.
0: Awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, if that's it, then we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks, guys, for coming. It was it was really great, and I really really enjoyed the book. Good, it, thank you. It's it's, it's so yeah, funny likewise. to me about the book in the sense that normally I get a tech book and I'll force myself to sit down for an hour or so and read it, and this one. I mean, I blew through it like I was reading a novel. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I think that really says a lot both for the writing style, the clarity, and just, just how compelling the content is.
2: Actually, we, we did, to, to let a little secret is in an earlier version, we were going to put sort of Victorian subtitles on all the chapter headings, <laughs> in which our hero discovers plugins or something. Otherwise.
4: I love those. Why don't books have those anymore? Oh, well. Yeah.
1: It was a great book. Thanks, guys. Well, yeah. thanks a lot thanks
4: so much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. So n- next week or next our next book club, did we decide that we were gonna do the yes. SOA book?
1: Yes, it is uh, do you remember what it's called? Service oriented design in Ruby? Um, Is that right? I'm looking it up.
0: It's called Amazon Says...
1: It's called Service-Oriented Design with Ruby and Rails. It's by Paul Dix, I think.
0: Yes. Yes, by Paul Dix, exactly. We'll do
1: that one in about two months. So, starting now, about two months from now.
0: Yep. And uh, other than that, I don't know that there are any announcements. Um, You can... Uh, You can go join Ruby Rogues Parlay by going to rubyrogues.com and uh, just, you know, follow the thing on the right with PayPal. I am working on getting it so that you can sign up for it without using PayPal, but uh, I've been pretty swamped and focused on some other things. So, you know, give me a few weeks and hopefully we'll get that up. And um, yeah, beyond that, we'll just catch you all next week. And thanks for listening.